Alright, so we're doing Matthew 13. 
and they just get driven over. Tonight's passage is about that. John stands up uh, for what is right in the face of tyranny. In this case, he's standing up for God's truth. The story revolves around Herod, uh, and we're really going to spend our time just trying to see what makes uh, this man tick. So, Herod. This is a different Herod from the one who was in charge at the birth of Jesus, if you know those stories. That was Herod the Great. Uh, he ruled all of Judea under the Romans. Uh, this Herod is uh, Herod the Great's son, Herod, also called Herod, Herod the Not-So-Great, it seems. Uh, after Herod the Great, uh, his kind of mini-empire was divided in four, and uh, Herod Antipater, his son, uh, got the quarter of the rule, and he got the backwater province of Galilee. It's like if your dad ran all of Perth, and then when he died, you were put in charge of Midland. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice place, but it's, it's out the back. <laughs> and Herod wasn't really in charge at all. Uh, Rome was in charge, Caesar was in charge, Herod was just this kind of puppet ruler, client state of Rome. And he's a tragic figure. I don't know if you felt it as we were reading it, the story kind of spills from darkness to darkness. This case study in human depravity and self-absorption. Uh, the story comes up in Matthew as a flashback. Uh, Herod hears about Jesus' ministry out in Galilee and he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, and his reaction is straight out of the Lord of the Rings or some kind of Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, his first thought is, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod has John the Baptist kind of in his head. He's obsessed with him. It's like Macbeth being haunted by Banquo's ghost. This, uh, he's got into his psyche. Uh, here's Herod, fearful and superstitious. In the ancient world, uh, there was this popular belief that uh, there was this great power in the dead. And if you could somehow tap into that power, if you could uh, somehow call on the dead by black um, magic, then you could get their power and use it for various things, to, to do miracles or send curses. And John was killed at Herod's hand. And not just killed, but brutally beheaded. And a killing like that gave uh, the dead spirit a special power. Here's Herod, fearful and superstitious. He's terrified at this news about Jesus. Is this John the Baptist back from the dead? Has he come back from him? Cue the flashback. Uh, Matthew tells the story to explain why Herod jumps to such a crazy uh, conclusion about what's going on. Uh, he's, he's explaining the situation, but it's more than that. Matthew has a, a bigger purpose in telling this, this whole flashback story, but we'll get to that. Here's the backstory, verse 3. Uh, for Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. But John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. 
but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Here's Herod, arrogant and immoral. I think when you're in charge, uh, you get used to getting the things that you want, whether you're a CEO or if you're just kind of a pop star, you, you see something, you like it, you grab it, you take it. And Herod is full to the brim of the arrogance of his rule. And he meets Herodias. And he's smitten. They, they fall in love. Uh, and he just thinks to himself, I must have her. Now, it doesn't matter to him that she's already married. It doesn't matter to him that he's already married. And that he'd have to divorce his wife in order just to make space for Herodias. Uh, no care for his brother Philip or his, his family. No thought to the fact that it breaks God's law. Here's Herod, arrogant and immoral, taking whatever he wants. And it turns out that it's a self-destructive move. Uh, normally rulers uh, use their marriages to forge alliances and to the skids in various uh, nations around. Uh, but taking Herodias does the opposite for Herod. Um, you know who really wasn't down with that move? Uh, his first wife's dad, uh, the King Aretas IV of Nabatea. He gets the shocker. He immediately declares war on Herod for taking Herodias uh, and divorcing his daughter. And basically, it blights his rule from that point on. It's a drain on him, this war. And even worse for Herod, it brings on John the Baptist, the prophet. God's prophet doesn't care who Herod is. doesn't care at all. He, his job is to speak God's word uh, to God's people, to call them to repentance, to call them back to living under God's law. And so he says, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John, the righteous prophet sent by God, uh, sends this rebuke to Herod. How does Herod uh, react to that? Does he react with humble repentance? Does he react with a kind of detached indifference? Whatever, I don't care what you think. Uh, no. Arrogant and immoral. He throws him in prison. But uh, the tragedy of Herod uh, just compounds in on itself over and over. Here's Herod, vindictive and spineless. He's so mad at John. How dare he speak to me like that? How dare he? But he's too spineless to do anything about it. Did you see that? Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Uh, as the kind of regional ruler under Caesar, his main job was really just to keep the peace, to uh, enforce Roman rule over his area. And if he kills John, he kind of does the signs in his head, and he works out, this place is going to riot if I kill John. Uh, and he's really wedged by the politics at this point. Uh, he hates John with a burning passion, and yet he can't do anything about it. Uh, too spineless. And so John is just a thorn in his side, this righteous man, suffering at his hand. 
telling you it is not lawful for you to have her. Here's Herod, vindictive and spineless. But the darkness of the story is really just uh, closing in at this point. We fast forward uh, to another scene. This time it's Herod's birthday. Here's Herod, indulgent and boastful. Uh, I think you have to uh, imagine the party. Herod was famous for these lavish, uh, indulgent parties. Think uh, a party at the Kardashian house. What would that look like? Something similar. Uh, and clearly he's having a great time, uh, he's loving it, uh, his new daughter-in-law is dancing and, and he's swept up in the moment, she pleases him so much and he's so intoxicated, so full of himself, so full of the wine, uh, that he can't help but show off. Ask me for anything, absolutely, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, anything at all, anything. And I swear, I swear by the Lord that I'll, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And you can almost hear the gasps of the guests say, ah, oh, he's so generous, wow, so extravagant. What a fool. What a fool. Indulgent and boastful. Uh, the tragedy is how his own wickedness kind of folds back on himself. His own wickedness finds its own reward. And again, he's wedged, but this time by his wife, by Herodias. He's damaged so many people to be with her. And he has set himself against God, and yet she is the one who pulls the rug out from him. Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, Herodias, uh, the girl, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Is Herod, vain and callous. Look at the situation she's putting in. Uh, if he kills John the Baptist, Galilee will burn. It will erupt. If he doesn't, he'll look like a fool. He'll look weak, like a weasel in front of his dinner guests. Now have a look at verse 9. The king was distressed uh, because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He ordered that her request be granted, and had John beheaded in the prison. Kind of, it dawns on him that he'll have to kill John. Uh, no trial, uh, just a, a brutal execution. But actually, that, that's not why he's distressed. Uh, literally, it says he's distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He, he's, he's only thinking about himself, his own reputation. I'm back out now, I'll be ashamed. What will they think of me? In front of all these important guests, I can't do it. He's distressed for himself. And so he beheads the righteous man, sets the nation on fire, all to save us. Here's Herod, vain and callous. And so you get to this sickening moment in the story where he orders the execution, and just sends the chill fall over the party. And they wait. And the guards come back with the severed head of John the Baptist on a plate. And they walk over and they hand it to the girl. 
maybe 12, 13 years old. She takes it and she turns around and she hands it to her mother. It is a dark, dark passage. A dark, dark event in history. Just the cruelty of it. So John dies for holding on to God's law. It is not lawful for you to have her. Fearful and superstitious, arrogant and immoral, vindictive and spineless, indulgent and boastful, vain and callous. That's Herod and Jupiter. <coughs> So why does Matthew include that story in his Gospel? Uh, it's one of uh, only a few episodes in the whole Gospel where Jesus isn't at the centre of attention. Uh, so why this focus on him? Uh, where's the lesson? Is the lesson in Herod for us? Uh, is it a warning? Don't be like Herod. This guy is, is terrible. Uh, is it a warning not to stand against God? Well, maybe. You certainly shouldn't model yourself on Herod. Uh, but I don't think it's just about that. It's not just a character lesson. Is the lesson in John? Is, it a, is that an example of what it means to be a disciple? To stand up for God's word? Uh, well, maybe. I'm sure there's things to learn here about what it means to stand up uh, for the truth of God's Word in a culture, in an environment where that is not welcome, uh, where uh, people think the opposite, but God's law says it's not lawful. I think it's got a lot to say to Christians in that circumstance. What should uh, God's people do in that situation? Uh, in the case of Herod, he has this relationship and John refuses to endorse it. God's word says what's right and what's wrong, and so he stands up for that, even though it costs him. And if you think about it like that, well, that's, that's very topical for us in our culture at the moment. Uh, but Matthew isn't writing uh, this to help us deal with uh, sexuality and marriage controversies of our day. No. Matthew's Gospel is about Jesus. And so we need to see how Matthew uses this story to point us to Jesus. So let's have a look at that. Uh, you see the connection in the first story about Jesus coming to his hometown. In a way, they have the same problem as Herod. They fail to recognise where Jesus is from, where his power comes from. Have a look at this. 54. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? See, Herod assumes that his power is from the dark arts, from uh, raising John the Baptist from the dead. His hometown don't think that, but they, they also don't think it can be from God. Uh, why not? Because he's a local. Can't be from God. Aren't his sisters here? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Who do you think he is? And so just like Herod, actually it's, it's their vanity which 
uh, drives their unbelief. They won't believe him because he's too ordinary. He's not impressive enough. They want to show they're just as much people pleasers as Herod is. And so they both fail at the same point. They fail to recognise God's King when he comes. So Jesus, the prophet, the one sent from God, has no honour in his hometown, just as John, the prophet, receives no honour from Herod. And so Matthew is drawing this connection because he wants to tell us something about Jesus. And especially he wants to tell us what's coming for Jesus. Have a look at the end, verse 12. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus has been rejected by the Pharisees, uh, run out of his hometown, and now he hears this news about John's death, and he knows that he is next. He knows what the future has for him, and he withdraws to a solitary place uh, to pray and prepare himself for that. And if you flick ahead uh, to Matthew 17, uh, this is the, the key to understanding uh, this passage, um, because uh, it comes up again for Jesus. The disciples have asked a question about Elijah, and this is Jesus' response. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. See how that directs us to what this is about? In, in the same way, Jesus is going to face exactly the same thing that John has. And what happened uh, to John the Baptist? Uh, Elijah has already come and they did not recognise him. He was not recognised as coming from God. And so we have this gruesome story uh, here in chapter 14, halfway through Matthew's Gospel, to tell us what is coming for Jesus, the ultimate uh, righteous one. Not just a prophet, but the very revelation of God. And he's going to say, face the same fate trial, uh, the same innocent death. So what does that mean for us? Uh, well, I think firstly, it's this. Don't let your vanity Stand in the way of recognising Jesus. Don't let your vanity stand in the way of recognising Jesus. That was the problem for Herod, for, for Jesus' hometown. Uh, they failed to see who Jesus was uh, because they were too caught up in their own uh, popularity, what they thought was impressive. And I think our vanity can stand in the way of belief too. We don't take Jesus seriously because he's not impressive enough, or he's ridiculed at uni or uh, on TV. And so we think, oh, we don't want a part with him because that's embarrassing. 
Our, our vanity holds us back from joining in, trusting uh, this crucified, uh, weak king. And that might be you. You might think, yeah, actually, uh, my vanity is holding me back from trusting Jesus. And this passage says, don't let that happen. That is a mistake to be so absorbed in yourself that you fail to recognise Jesus. Uh, this is a slide, a picture of uh, a lady named Andrew Dan. You might recognise her from kind of mid-range Australian TV series, uh, such as House Husbands, or Anzac Girls, or Underbelly. Um, she was so much, she was interviewed recently by a Centre for Public Christianity, and uh, she, the way she told the story, she was dead set against Christianity. Uh, this is what she said. She said, I had been trained in liberal arts education. I'd come from the LGBT community and I'd come from a group of people that had felt so rejected by the church. I used to walk around and say, I don't judge anyone except Christians. Uh, but Anna started investigating Christianity, going to church, uh, reading the Bible, and discovering the person of Jesus. And this is what she said next. She said, if this is true, it will change the whole world, and I don't understand why no one's told me about him before. Here was someone uh, who didn't let her, her history or her culture or her friends, any of that, hold her back from finding Jesus, from recognising him for who he was. If this is true, it will change the whole world. She recognised God's King. Come from God. So that's the first point. Don't let your own vanity stand in the way of recognising Jesus for who he is. Uh, but secondly, I think this passage does tell us something about standing up for God's truth in the face of opposition. It's exactly what John did. Uh, it tells us something about that, but I think not the way that we might think. It's not a guide or a challenge to be like John. Because this passage is pointing forward to Jesus' death. It's pointing forward to what Jesus does, not what we do. It's pointing forward to Jesus' offer of forgiveness on the cross. So really what it tells us, uh, it tells us of Jesus' death for us when we fail to stand for the truth. Because that happens uh, more often than we'd like. Too often we are silent in the face of unrighteousness. We don't want to be that lone person standing uh, by ourselves for what's right. Because it's, it's risky. We don't want to face the backlash. But Jesus does what we don't. He faces rejection and execution just like John. But in doing that, he achieves something greater. He dies for sin. He takes our punishment. Takes the punishment that we deserve for all the times we have failed to stand for what is right. Jesus doesn't just die for heroes. The uh, people who stood up for, for what was right. The people who've earned it. No, if you haven't stood up for what is right, if you know that you have uh, not done that, 
And Jesus is your saviour too. Especially then. We need a saviour. Here's Jesus hanging on a cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Uh, we live in changing times. And what our culture says is good and right uh, doesn't always agree with what God says is good and right. And it's hard to be the only one standing up for that. But Jesus' death, the Gospel offer, is for forgiveness for when we fail to do that. And in fact, there is no other way that we will stand for what is right other than in the Gospel. It's only if we know that we have been rescued and made secure by the death of Jesus that we'll be able to stand up for what is good and right. Because there's no other way we'll be able to take that risk unless we know that Jesus has us. That no matter what backlash, no matter what consequences, he has us firmly and has forgiven us and that we are his. If you want to stand up for what is right, don't look to yourself. You don't have the strength. I don't have the strength. But in the Gospel we can because we'll be relying on Jesus, the righteous one who stood firm, loved us to the end and bore the consequences.